Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on with our study in the book of Hebrews. We'll be starting in chapter 5, and as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, the Lord, for allowing us to uh, come visit your word and study it, to uh, refresh our minds with the wonderful truths that you have given us, and we thank you for Mark and, and his studying the word for us to help us better understand this, to write this on our hearts, and to be uh, witnesses to one and all to the true value of Jesus Christ, your son, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you, Tom. It's good to be back with everyone. Last week, we're looking at this detailed literary argument made to a synagogue community of Judeans who are considering just kind of falling back into becoming nondescript members of the synagogue to avoid the persecution that is about to be leveled at confessors of Jesus as Messiah. And our author in what we call chapter 4 made a great comparison between the first generation of Israelites who were offered a physical rest in the physical land of Palestine to the spiritual rest that is offered to the last generation of Israelites in Jesus Christ. So that's a very, very important concept back in chapter 4. Now, as we go into chapter 5, he is moving into the qualifications of Christ to be a high priest. The entire literary argument is contrasting the inferior aspects of the old age to the vastly superior aspects of the new age, the age that was about to dawn, and it has in fact dawned. So now we're going to look at the old high priest and the new high priest. So let's begin by reading the first four verses of chapter 5, please. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, 
as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. Great. Thank you so much. There are two major qualifications of a high priest. He must be, one, able to sympathize with those he represents, and he must be divinely appointed to the office. And then we see how these two conditions apply to the Levitical priesthood here, or the, well, Aaron as the high priest in the Levitical priesthood. It goes without saying that the priest to represent human beings needed to be a human being himself. And Aaron and his successors who represented the Israelites were Israelites themselves and had been exposed to all the same situations, uh, bad times, good times, long-suffering times uh, of Israel out there in the wilderness or in Egypt and then later in the wilderness. So certainly Aaron could at least sympathize with the people that he was supposed to represent. The responsibility of the high priest to God is to offer sacrifices for sins, and specifically the high priest only really did this once a day on the Day of Atonement. The other priests presided over all the other rituals and the daily sacrifices and so on, but the high priest had to preside over the particular sin offerings that are specific to the annual observance of the Day of Atonement. We look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament and we we begin to see flaws in the high priestly office uh, from the beginning. Aaron himself of course led the people in the making of the golden calf out there in the wilderness. As we get further and further along in the history of Israel, we see greater and greater corruption in the office of high priest. And certainly the period in between the Testaments, between Malachi and Matthew, were characterized by extreme corruption in the office, the period of the Maccabees, for instance. And, of course, by the time of Christ, the Romans offered the office to the highest bidder every year. So it was uh, something that was corrupt for much of Israel's history. But they were supposed to empathize with the problems of the subject peoples uh, who are described as the ignorant and the erring. The law has a lot of sacrifices for those who sin ignorantly. But certain things uh, that are more willful in nature, such as willful murder, there are no offerings for that type of sin under the law of Moses. So ignorance was was no excuse, and their sacrifices had to be offered, and the high priest was supposed to be sympathetic to those who erred through ignorance. 
the sin that is evident amongst the holders of the high priestly office, such as Aaron leading and making the golden calf, would indicate that they were not in a suitable condition to intercede for the people. In fact, God was about to eradicate the entire nation, including Aaron, because of the golden calf incident, and Moses had to intercede and go into the presence of Yahweh to get a pardon for the entire nation. So it's no wonder that we see that the high priest had to first offer a sin offering for himself on the Day of Atonement before he could even consider offering sacrifices for the entire nation. This is described in Leviticus, the 16th chapter. The other qualification that he had to have was to be called by God for the office. It was not open to the highest bidder like most offices in the United States are now. I say that cynically, I suppose. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, It was not supposed to be up for sale to the highest bidder or those who wrote the best essay or anything like that. It was an office that God chose who would hold it. Aaron certainly was appointed directly by God, and then all of his heirs and successors were similarly appointed by God. So that's more or less the the main points that he's trying to get across here in these first uh, four verses. All right, well, let's go ahead and read verses 5 through 10, please. Okay. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and cheers to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Great, thank you. All right, so now... Christ is going to be compared to these earlier high priests. The second qualification is now addressed first in Christ's sake by quoting from the second psalm, You are my son today, I have begotten you. And it rolls right into another psalm, uh, the 110th psalm where it says you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we'll have a lot more to discuss about Melchizedek in the seventh chapter. But here he's introduced. He's a very mysterious figure out of the book of Genesis. He is a high priest and king of Salem, probably the site uh, that would later become Jerusalem, 
and we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went, and this will be talked about later. But he was uh, so important that Abraham gave him a tenth of uh, the spoils that he gathered up in the slaughter of the kings described there in the book of Genesis. David, of course, made Jerusalem his capital, and he served as king there over Israel. But he also had a few special priestly duties, such as when he set up what we call the Tabernacle of David there in Jerusalem in complete parallel to what the Levitical priests were doing with the Tabernacle of Moses. David had set up his own tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat apparently exposed to all there under an awning in in Jerusalem. And our writer here is probably attempting to show that David had taken up the mantle of Melchizedek as the king of Salem and Christ being a descendant of David, not of Aaron, is a priest, obviously a king as well, but he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And as far as the idea of Christ not exalting himself, this is um, stressed over and over in the Gospel of John, which we looked at some time ago, to where he kept emphasizing that he did not speak things from himself, but he only spoke what the Father wanted him to speak. He was appointed by God just as Aaron had been, except in a a greater way to an even greater order of priesthood. The details of, of his intercession are discussed in verse 7. We saw as he walked in the flesh, as we look at the Gospels, that he was very human, even though he was also God, and he immersed himself in the sorrows of his people, in the people of Galilee, in the people of Judea, and even every now and then the people of Samaria and Phoenicia. He got down where there was a lot of suffering and things going on. So he was able to empathize with the people that he was to represent as high priest. He suffered, as as we remember uh, constantly. He glorified the Father through his uh, suffering, and loud cries and tears are mentioned here. The emphasis, I think, here is Christ's devotion and submission to the will of the Father at the same time that he was empathizing with the um, suffering and the ongoing sinful condition of the people of Judah that he ministered to when he was in his fleshly body. He put himself in places where people were suffering, and he put himself in the company of sinners, and he did this over and over again until 
he ended up on the cross between two thieves. Uh, as it's spoken, he was numbered with the transgressors. He talked about his passion not only as the cup that he had to drink, but also as a baptism or immersion in which he was going to be immersed. The idea of being immersed in suffering carries not a very good connotation to most of us uh, accustomed to our prosperity and life of ease that we enjoy these days. But he had to fulfill all of this uh, through his suffering. And this suffering is what completed him as the perfect high priest so that he could become the source of eternal salvation to uh, those who obey him. This idea of eternal salvation is possibly from Isaiah 45, where it says, Israel is saved by Yahweh with everlasting salvation. And the physical life of Israel was fleeting, but Christ, of course, came to offer the uncreated life of God to those who would believe in him, a place in the Father's presence forever. The law of Moses could never offer such a thing. Another way to say this is that the salvation which was procured by the obedience of Christ the Redeemer is available to the redeemed who also show obedience. And then you can get into the imagery of the bride and the groom and the bride following the groom, which is a pattern we see in the New Testament where the body of Christ as the bride of Christ continues to do, as we saw in the book of Acts, specifically all the things that Christ himself did before when he was in his fleshly body. The groom goes first and then the bride follows. So our readers are again being encouraged to stick to it, to persevere in their loyalty to Christ because he alone can offer eternal salvation. And any comments or thoughts here before we go into the last uh, section of chapter 5? I had a question earlier on verse 4. Sure, go interesting. ahead. I've never heard uh, about the high priest paying for their position. And I'm just curious on that because it was obviously going on at the time that verse 4 was written. But was that a, maybe a slam against what was actually happening when he says no one calls his honor on himself? I mean, could that have been, uh, I mean, that's good that it's written there because it's obviously true, but but um, it seems like it was against the prevailing practice of the day. Well, of course, all of the believers became opponents of the regime in Judea one way or the other. There was really no compromise. The ruling elite of Judea were the enemies of God. And so I don't know how pointed the slight was intended here, but I think you're right. It is definitely a slight to what was going on in Jerusalem 
with this system, which is described by the historian Josephus in great detail. Mm. Uh, so we, we know how that, that was going on. Glad for the reference there. I was wondering. And how long One, was that going on for? Oh, I don't remember when it started. Josephus tells you because he gives you the history of the high priesthood all the way through the Maccabees, who were autonomous from Rome, and then how they fell under the subservience of Rome right around 60 B.C. And it came about pretty quickly, I think, that the Romans wanted the control, and they, they actually kept the garments that had to be worn for the Day of Atonement ceremony hostage in the fortress Antonia there in Jerusalem, and they would only release it to the party that they deemed as the high priest. And again, it was pretty much up for sale to the highest bidder, although there was one family, Caiaphas and Ananias, that kept a hold on it for uh, decades, passed it around through five or six uh, family members, but they were able to use the influence of the office to sustain the financial backing that was required to keep the Romans paid off uh, as far as uh, keeping it in their uh, family for a good long time. And they worked closely with with Pilate, right, as well. Oh, well, certainly. I mean, the garrison would have looked to him to make that final decision, but probably nothing they took minutes of (laughs) uh, and left any record of of those deliberations. Okay, thanks. All right, well, let's uh, read the last verses 11 through 14, please. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because we no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Great, thank you. So, Melchizedek, there is much to say, and, and he's, he's going to set that aside for a while and pick it back up in what we call chapter 7. But he's going to pause in order to make a little jab at their spiritual immaturity here at this time. And again, this is a common passage that is used out of context by a lot of uh, preachers and teachers, but... The principle of it, sadly, is not misapplied in our country today. So many people who claim to be Christians just don't know much Bible at all or have swallowed a completely uh, wrong system of reading it, which dispensationalism or Christian Zionism would be a prime example of a bad way to study the Bible. These people, they were hearing the Law and the Prophets read in their synagogue community every Sabbath, and they weren't exercising their mind to make the spiritual application of those passages. Uh, Sadly, just like our present-day dispensational and Zionist friends, they were content with the simple 
physical facts rather than the spiritual truths about Messiah that they were also intended to represent. And if you don't focus on the spiritual import of those things, then you can can become spiritually lazy and think that the, the physical things are as important or more important than the spiritual truths, which are uh, Jesus Christ. And he compares them to being a baby nursing on milk. So it's a, it's a good <laughs> passage to describe what's wrong today in so many of the churches, but I always like at least a token attempt to place the passage in context before making the proper uh, present-day application. Melchizedek has been the subject of a lot of speculative writing in the Jewish tradition, and they see something about him that is kind of tied in to the age to come, the age of Messiah, but they really don't have enough information to uh, to really put it all together. We'll get a, a much more detailed uh, picture later on in chapter 7, but as I said, they've got to be chewed out here a little bit uh, first about their spiritual immaturity. Paul also made similar criticism of the Christians in Corinth, where their claim to be spiritual was belied by their carnality and their infighting and jealousies and, and things of that nature, which are not appropriate for a true spiritual understanding of the body of Christ. And, of course, this is related to the overall problem and cause of, of the letter in the first place, which is that they were just content to slip into the old physical realities of the Judean system, the Judean religion, the law of Moses, and synagogue life. And there we have, I guess, chapter 5. He's going to, again, just build on this as we roll into chapter 6. Any other thoughts or comments here before we close for the evening? I uh, love that last verse, solid food is for the mature who have, by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That is just, it sum, sums up the whole chapter right there, I think. It just, uh, it just sums up the whole, <laughs> the whole Hebrews just learning to, you know, not be swayed by outside influences who are trying to guide you one way or the other, but relying on prayer and the Word to determine what's true and right. Yeah, that's extremely well said. We saw one of the themes in the book of Acts that we recently looked at was that the leadership of Judea had become the enemy of God. So those priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, who were supposed to be all that was good about Israel, had in fact become pure evil. And, of course, the mobs, the vast majority, never noticed that positions had been juxtaposed, just as you so ably described. They did not go and compare it to the Scripture to see who was the true friend of God and who was the true uh, enemy of God. And again, certainly, unfortunately, we have very tragic 
parallels to that in our present day and age as well. Yeah, with the Christian religion now. Yes, yes. Very apt theme for our study here, I think. <laughs> Mark, the whole idea of sacrifices led to corruption, did it not? The sacrifice he was supposed to bring his most valued livestock in to be sacrificed on the temple, and then something had to happen to the meat. Yeah, food was valuable then, just like it is now, and what do you suppose happened? Well, yeah, we have all kinds of examples. The whole book of Malachi is written to to expose that type of corruption with that whole process. You had uh, back in the days of Samuel, his sons wanting different kind of meat than what God wanted them to have as priests, and so they corrupted the process. So, yes, we see... We see stories all through ancient Israel's history of the corruption of the sacrificial process. Selling the meat out the back door. <laughs> yeah, and then offering offering the blind and the lame, you know, making last-minute substitutes, you know. All right, well, thanks so much, Mark. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.